Um, welcome to another episode of In Detail, where we take you behind the scenes of creative business. Um, this is episode two, season one. Um, I'm here with my friends Warwick Mahaley and Mick Maloney, and we're here to discuss how to write the perfect, perfect fee proposal. Today's episode of In Detail was made possible with the help of our friends at Streamtime, who have developed team management software designed by and for the creative and design industries. We're fans of their dedication to the death of timesheets and their epically designed user-friendly interface. Our thanks go to the Streamtime team for supporting us while we lift the cone of silence on what running a creative business is really like. One of the things we've been chatting about with fee proposals is that it's there to solve problems or it's there in the in the event that there is a problem and even when there isn't a problem, it's um, your fee proposal is there to help you and your client and guide you along that process um, through the build. Warwick, would you like to comment on that? <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joe in court. I just want to congratulate us all for how natural we yes. are at this. Yeah. <laughs> it feels completely authentic. Um, I do actually would like to comment on that, though, quite seriously. Yeah. Of course um, you would. That's why I asked you. <laughs> God. Jesus. <laughs> Um, I actually, years ago, one of our first clients was a lawyer and um, I remember we got into a conversation about contracts and things and she described it very elegantly, which was that a contract between two people or whatever is not about constraining the relationship and telling you what you can't do. Mm. It's about setting the base framework for that relationship. It's a starting point off which... The actual relationship then launches, which, as we know, um, or I assume we all know, um, is much more about you know the interpersonal connection and what you can kind of negotiate and manage with your clients rather than what's written on the paper. Yeah, that's such a good big picture view of it all, and I think that the the CAA, the Client Architect Agreement, that that we all sort of come to use eventually, it, it sets that framework. But it also, you know, if you're a client and you're coming to this for the first time, you've got no idea really what the nature of that relationship is going to be about or what it's not going to be about. You know, even things as simple as explaining the architectural stages of work and the things that are included in that. We always get clients that are like, what, you, you're going to pick all the light fittings? What, what so you, you think it's that? a document, you think it's a document that educates as well as... Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah, and it just it gives a. Um, this is why we send a lot of a lot of ours out with that um, a really initial thing that like we talked about. The you guys call it a welcome pack. We just call it a client guide. But in in ours, we send out a lot of that information at the start, so that people can say, okay, well, you know, this is a this is a pretty significant cost of the build. But look at all the stuff we're getting. Look at look at this sort of list after list of of things that will be done by the architect in each stage. Um, and that's, I think, part of that setting of the scope as much as it is the yeah. terms of the relationship. Do you have something like that, Was? Yeah, well, actually, you, you just made me think, Mick, about, um, you know how, like, when you go onto a, you know, a, a car website and you can compare... Or you know, or the or a computer website, or whatever, and it just lists all the stuff that the compute, the car, or the computer, or whatever includes. Like yeah. oh, it comes with color matched re- side view mirrors and a sunroof and a you know yeah. six speaker, blah blah blah. And that options list ends up like validating the price point of the um, 
you know, the, the machine that you're buying. Mm. And in, in a way, what it sounds like you produce does a similar thing. I think ours is kind of much more high level than that. I think we conceptually we talk about um, the phases and we talk about, you know, the goal of the town planning phase is to do this and this is the the deliverables and so on, but mm. um, it doesn't go into the minutiae of what we do. Um, we were that's a good like thing or that. Bad thing. We changed, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing either. It's really hard to measure this shit. That's one of the big things about fee proposals and this whole um, thing is that if you make a change or you, you say, okay, well, I'm going to try this out, it can take four, five years before you've worked out whether or not it was a good idea. Mm. Oh, yeah. I feel so good when I add a little clause, um, you know, to our T's and C's that mm. protects us against something we've just learnt on another project. Like, yeah. <laughs> We're now like totally sorted. We'll never get screwed over on <laughs> photography days or intellectual property or whatever. Yeah. But of course, oh, wait a minute. There's all our current projects which do not have those T's and C's. Plus yes. the next two years yeah. before it actually becomes relevant. And you, and you sort of hold your breath on those ones hoping that that, that doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Totally. What about that you? That actually Kate? brings us into another, uh, well, I guess a broader framework for the discussion in that. Essentially, the fee proposal in the same in the same way that building a contract between the builder and the client is designed to sort of lock down a series of of basic unknowns. Um, so we've got uh, one part of it is that the cost or the budget is largely unknown, and percentage fee and how you deal with that is one of those things. Um, and then we've got you know that the time frames vary, uh, that the relationship might change, and so that's what you know locking in those things about the photography and things like that at the at the beginning is is important for that. Uh, and then the clients themselves, like how they behave, they're always a can of worms every time. And so our, our framework is designed to give a bit of certainty to this arrangement. Um, and I think maybe for some of this discussion we might want to try and work out. I mean, you guys, every time I hear you talk about fee proposals, you have some little gem based on one of these things um, that helps work work out some of those sort of unknowns. Um, I grew Warwick. up on the street. You know, I learned everything I know from <laughs> hard days. Bare knuckle architecture fighting. In the hood. Yeah. In the, in the um, yeah. When you were, before Mick and I were actually just chatting about something that you have was something to do with uh, fees and tender pricing, tender prices. Yes. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> Sounds like a real winner of a clause. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, okay, so this is actually one of the things that has burnt us in the past where um, we had a, like, crazy, well, so so our, the context is, is that our fees are percentage-based um, mm-hmm. and so in a way that means we live and die by whatever the construction industry says things are worth and obviously mm-hmm. we do our best to kind of manage that process but we sometimes get surprised. And on one job we had a... Um, a project value where we were, you know, we had advice and we, you know, were certain, you know, the price was, you know, let's say $2 million for um, the build and we got two or three tenders so close to that number that it was almost like we had gazed through a crystal ball mm. and we had one price at um, just over half that. And so we were then left with a situation of a percentage fee being based on a, you know, a 1.2 million or whatever it was budget, not the 2 million, which really in retrospect was a fair price. 
and I say retrospect because we sort of maybe suspected some sort of not necessarily shady deals, but um, that something was happening that made that 1.2 price. It was like clear that it wasn't viable. Hmm. Anyway, so we right. thought long and hard about this and went, well, how do we protect ourselves from that sort of weird lowball environment? And if you get a highball price from a tender, like the client's never going to accept the one that's twice as much. So there's no point mm. in like, you know, it's almost like an invalidated sort of thing for you, mm. for us. But um, the low one is the one that can really mess you around potentially. Mm. And so we just now say that our percentage fee is based on, off on the average of tenders received. Mm. What, if, what if somebody... Um, from both highball and lowball prices. Yeah. What if somebody um, cancels their project the day before the tender is due to come back? Um, well, we've been caught out on that before as well. Uh, and <laughs> of course, so, you know, you all dog. <laughs> the critical thing, right, is if you're most architects, as, as I understand it, at small scale, use percentage fees. Like we've done that for decades. As a, as a profession and so the question is you know what happens if you get you know if the market messes you around or, or what do you do before you even hit the market mm-hmm. and so the, the key thing we now have in our agreement is that the fee is based off on your client client a fee is based off on your budget to begin with but as soon as we receive a cost estimate from a professional person not yourself basically a third party be it a, an approved builder or a quantity surveyor we mm-hmm. update our fee instantly to that mm-hmm. number. Yep. And if that changes over the life mm-hmm. of the project, we keep on updating and updating and updating. <clears throat> and that the tender itself, even if the client rejects the tender outcome, is evidence of the price point of the project. So we you had mean, previously yeah, the, had this situation where it was validates the, the budget, cost estimate, contract price. Mm-hmm. The client refused to get a cost estimate for various reasons, and so we were working off on this bu- off this budget, which was totally inadequate. We never got an approved contract price, and so the client just totally rejected our claims that we should be paid based off received tenders, which mm. were in line with our pricing advice. I should I should say as well, mm. and um, we got burnt because we were left in this um, no man's land. Yep. And so now we say that every every time you have this like little bit of extra pricing advice, it is the new. Truth. Yep. The new truth. Yeah. That's actually really good. That's, that's, that's the new down. reality. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we, um, we right. encourage our clients, well, we actually make it mandatory that we use um, uh, B, C and D cost plans from the quantities of that. So we, we're getting a cost plan B done at the end of concept design, um, C at the end of DD and uh, at, at town planning when we do our um, town planning at the end of DD. And then another pretender estimate from the QS, um, because uh, first of all, it's really good to have that something to, to benchmark your tenders, especially in, in the uh, current climate where you've got lots of builders who are mm. getting you know um, way too busy and they can't you know sometimes they'll pull out of a tender and you might only have one price there. So having a, a proper QS pretender estimate is very useful data. Um, but it also, I think, sets up those um, expectations along the way. You know, having multiple checkpoints along the way for the client to to um, to really keep their expectations of the, of the budget in check. We've just found that it's it's brought the even though they don't like paying for that advice along the way um, because they know they're going to get it for free at the tender and it's going to mm. be the advice that they get at the tender. Um, it it 
it gets everybody to simmer the fuck down a little bit during the process and and their your your expectations of what your building is going to cost are very well tempered by a, a professional cost plan uh, remind us to do a language warning. <laughs> warning for all those kids yeah. listening to this podcast about architecture. Yeah. No children. And what about you, Kate? Um, how do you handle that? Sort of we are in the process of moving from fixed fee to percentage based on these conversations that I've been having with you guys over the last, you know, couple of months. Wow. Um, yeah, I just didn't have the confidence of how we could have that discussion. Um, I didn't understand, you know, how you approach it. And, and now that we've, I've, you know, I think even Mick sort of having the um, the estimate price is always in the invoice. And so you're just, you're just adjusting, you're just adjusting it every time based on the new truth, which I think makes a lot of sense. And if you were running your clients through that and, and you know, taking them through the fee proposal at the beginning, um, then all of that would become clear. You're like, this is the system, this is the process, and everybody feels safe in that, and that's what your fee proposal is there to do. And one thing that I thought was really good was, Mick, when you were talking about your um, welcome pack uh, client guide, how you do a sample fee that's yeah. not theirs. So you take the emotion out of it yeah. and then you have it itemised. And, and yeah. can, um, can you sort of explain that Yeah, again? so we Please. have... Um, uh, it, it, it's in the initial guide as well where we, yep. we say, okay, the project X has a value of $1 million um, and then we do the next line is the GST component of that is, so it's 1.1 um, and then the architectural fee is the percentage and that's charged on the XGST price. So people can really start to see this being set out like a spreadsheet and then we'll also include the um, consultants, so your building surveyor, your um, structural engineer, your land surveyors, all of those people that are going to be likely to be required for that project. Um, mm-hmm. And then we spit out a, a, um, an indicative total project cost at the end. And I think that um, it's just to me because we get this question, even though the, the client architect agreement and um, there's lots of sort of information out there that, that separates the construction estimate or forecast from the um, from the total project value, mm. It, it, there's nothing like seeing a worked example of it to really um, drive that home. And you, where do you put the GST in that? Have you had this before where someone said, I want to charge DST and GST? Yeah, so um, uh, I think we talked about that um, last time is that we um, we don't want to be in a position where their clients are sort of saying, ah, oh, well, you know, I've... I've Seeing that the, you know your fees ten percent, but is that ten percent of the inclusive GST cost or the exclusive? Because I don't want to pay my GST on GST, and um, which of course you know makes perfect sense. Um, mm. And so, but it's kind of arbitrary <coughs> because mm. yeah, I, we do exactly the same thing that you, um, you do, and I presume Kate as well. Like you just you sort of looking at the XGST amount, XGST, yeah. Mm. But technically speaking, we could charge. You know, someone could come to you with a half million dollar budget and say, "We charge a percentage on, you know, the current ASX value or something." Like it's it's a totally arbitrary construct. Yeah, yeah. You could use the zodiac signs if you want, but yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> right. I, I think so whether or not it's it's not technically GST on GST, it's just a it's just a. An, well, the, the GST component of it, I think it all works out in the end. But I think there's this idea that people don't want to pay a tax on a tax. Oh, um, totally agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so putting and GST on the total price of petrol, for example, would be crazy because the um, the 
most of the component of the petrol price is already a, a government tax, so you're taxing a tax. Yeah. But, um, or do they do that? I don't know. Is there GST on petrol? No idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Well, that's claim it each month. Language warning, Kate. <laughs> Um, Actually, another... Kate, but before we move on, I'm curious more, can we drill down into your um, comment about switching from fixed to percentage? Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, tell us more about that. Like what, what do you see as the pros and cons of the way you've been doing it and why you want to shift? Um, one of the pros of doing it this way is that as a, as a younger practitioner with less experience in negotiating, it can be a lot, whoa. Well, what just happened? I think our washing machine turned on upstairs and, <laughs> and now you can hear the <laughs> We are keeping this in. <laughs> we High are quality recording studio. <laughs> yeah. <Yes>. Note. <laughs> Couldn't afford lagging on the parts, guys. Um, yeah, so part part of the part of the sort of reluctance for me to use percentage based fees was um, Firstly, we weren't getting the estimates at this at enough state. You know, we weren't getting the estimates, so that was that's number one. Mm. So we couldn't base it on something that wasn't us. So that was yeah. the first challenge. Mm. Number two was um, that I didn't know how to have those conversations with people. And in my mind, if we were to turn around and say, "Listen, you build," um, I know your budget was one point two, but now it's a two million dollar build, and so you owe us thirty five grand or whatever it is, mm. is a really blunt and weird way of doing business and I was like I just can't see how we can make that work and the answer is the fee proposal and it is that client guide at the beginning and that um, example fee where you explain how the process works and I think even just saying it's not about what I think your budget is or what you think the budget is it's about a fair and and reasonable estimate that comes from um Another party, an expert. Yeah, yeah. and well, <coughs> you know, keep going. No, nah, that's it. Well, that, that's another got. interesting one. Is that you know, if we're talking about the QS, and I often explain to the clients, I say the QS is the most important consultant in this, including the architect in the, in the entire project. You know, if you can't afford to do this, then mm. th- then none of it will come. You know, all of this will come to nothing. But um, uh, you know, you can have all the structural engineering and, and architecture in the world. But if you can't afford, if this does not stack up, and you can't do this, that's the mm. worst possible outcome because it's it's a waste of your money and everybody's effort. Um, so I actually consider the the QS to be the the, the primary sort of um, consultant in the in the whole project to, to get you yeah. to that point of switching it between you know not viable to viable. Um, um, but interestingly. Uh, operating in a smaller city, there um, there's no QSs that we're aware of in Ballarat, um, and so we we have to outsource ours to Melbourne. And people are always like, "Oh, is that Melbourne price going to be you know accurate to our local pricing?" We're like, "Yeah, it's pretty similar." Yeah. Um, uh, but we often get clients who say, "No, I want my mate, the builder, to to price this job." Have mm. you guys had that? Oh yeah, all the time, and sometimes we encourage it. Um, Alongside a QS or alongside, not in, yeah. in substitution. Oh, I don't know. Um, my feeling in all this, like the, the broader conversation about the role of the QS and you know the budget and the relationship to fees, is first and foremost, it's a it's a negotiation. 
Um, and I, I mentioned that, the, you know, the thing about, you know, the arbitrary construct of the relationship between um, price, the, you know, construction budget and fee because the only relationship that really technically exists between those things is what we say exists. And so mm. that stems from us doing an analysis of what does it cost us to run our business, yep. how much profit do we want to make, how much do we think we're worth, how much can we ask for, what is the mm. market doing. And so we usually, like the way we present the whole thing is not as a um, kind of externalised um, exercise but more as we have developed, we're quite transparent and we provide a fee curve as part of that welcome pack mm. which does limit our ability to like manipulate that if we feel like a project's going to be more or less difficult or a client is going to be more or less difficult. We're kind of stuck to that mm. hyper-transparency from the beginning. Mm. Yep. Um, though I would say that we've had a lot of feedback over the years that that's like really valued so it's mm. C plus. Yeah. Um, but we say that curve has been tweaked over the years to make sure that there's always a fair kind of compensation for the work that we do based on your budget. And the budget is essentially a simple proxy for your scope because we know that if you want to do a half million dollar reno versus a $1 million reno, there is a different amount of work for us. And so we have engineered this perfect curve to reflect, very carefully reflect um, the amount of work we have to do between those two things. And the answer is it, actually it's true. I, I've been meaning to, for my blog to go back and count the number of fee curves we've had over mm. the years because it would be in the dozens. Yeah, yeah, same with us. Yeah. But I, I got to the point with that work there where I thought, hmm, this sort of, you know, it's presenting this veneer of science, but there's no real mm. relationship, certainly to us, between one, you know, we can't sit down and audit a job perfectly for every hour that we've spent on it and say, ah, yes, we, we hit that number on that curve. I know you're a, you're a, you're a data head and you, mm. you, would, you would have that um, at hand, but I've never got to the point where I've sat there and I've, I've really analysed previous projects and I've gone, okay, so this one was 13.25% and that actually reflected exactly how much effort or, and, and hours that went into that project. Um, oh no no that's I don't reckon that's just the the spirit we take to it though I'm like data head absolutely that it's really more about okay we're running a business the purpose of the business is to is to you know allow us to do meaningful work but also to make a living and um, you know I consider as a general rule architects are underpaid and I would include myself in that um, you know general categorization so if the the goal is to constantly just try and improve that financial position. You can do it in one of two ways, spend less time delivering the same product or, or charge more for the same product. And we're really kind of trying to do both over the years. So it's not so much about working out whether or not 13.25% was the number. It's mm. about working out whether or not this time around, could we ask for 13.5% rather than 13% and get a little bit more money through the door for the same sort of project to give us a bit more fat in our fee to do better work or to make more profit or whatever, just mm. like constantly like nudging it, seeing how far the market will allow us to position ourselves financially to still win jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that your clients ask you a lot of questions when they're trying to analyse your fee graph? No. And I reckon when you, I... Sorry, you go. No, I was just going to say, I, I attribute that to the hyper-transparency that we maintain. Mm. 
um, both from that early curve and, you know, it basically by giving them that curve even before they, we've prepared a fee proposal, they can go and do some, you know, very fast maths. Go, well, therefore, if my budget is $700,000, my fee mm-hmm. is going to be, uh, uh, okay, it's going to be that. Yep. They can work it out. And then yep. our fee then kind of basically reflects that, but, you know, broken down or whatever. And then like you in our invoicing, we always have the budget there and the relationship mm-hmm. between that and our percentage and our fee. So it's all like, again, hyper-transparent. Yeah. Um, I reckon you would get, we would get way more questions if we broke our fee down into 100 pieces and maybe we should. Maybe that would be better. So, look, okay, you want a shadow diagram? Well, if the council wants one shadow diagram, we will charge you 500 bucks for it and if they want six, they will, we will charge you $3,000 for it. But then, then they're going to say, well, wait a minute, why do I need six? <laughs> yeah, and question every little bit. And start questioning yeah, everything. Yeah. It's like, you know, the difference between a fixed price contract and a cost plus contract. Mm. The fixed price, you don't care how many bags of nails need to be bought. It's a builder's problem. Yeah. But if it's, you know, if it's there to be asked, you ask. So I think the idea of that transparency coupled with simplicity is like a winning, a bit of a winning um, partnership. Yeah. Yeah, I think the what? transparency is very important. But the for us, it, it, we got so many questions about the graph, and as you said, we were redrawing that graph so many times uh, as we kind of our position within the profession adjusted. So did the graph um, mm. to the point where you know it, it, it may have started off at sort of you know twenty percent or so, and then and gone down to less than ten at, at a five million dollar job. Um, but uh, eventually, as as we sort of worked out where our band of work sat, we weren't doing any twenty percent jobs because they had you know fifty thousand dollars budgets, um, and so we we sort of found that we were sort of starting around about five or six hundred thousand for our um, smaller projects, and then capping out at you know two to three million for our bigger ones, um, and so that kind of brought the two ends of the graph um, a bit closer, and and as we sort of were in a position where we could charge more as a company, the the, the graph started to flatten out to a degree where it wasn't so much this beautiful um, paraboloid that you see on the, yeah. the fee graphs. It was more like this sort of just a fairly drab-looking um, straight line. So we, um, after looking at what um, some other big companies in Melbourne were doing, um, we just said, you know, here's, here's our number and, and that just applies straight across the board. So that calculation that as a, you can do as a client and say, okay, if it's a $1 million job, it's going to be hundred grand in fees. If it's a $2 million job, it's a, just 200,000 in fees. So that um, I think takes out an element of complexity from that, um, which in my mind is, is, is one of these sort of um, hurdles or, or these reasons to say no to a project at the start is, oh, God, we don't even know how much it's going to cost. We've got to go back and, and, and do these sort of calculations, which yes. to you and I, I mean, we're used to it all. It's just that the feedback we were getting is that this is a like a, a, a sort of a bizarre way to do business and it's sort of unique to architects, nobody else. Um, and even our consultants, really, they just give us a fee proposal with a number in it. Um, well, what are you planning on doing, Kate, with yeah. the new model? Are you going for us doing the sort of the curve or Mick nah. Team running Mick. number? No. Nah. Neither. I'll just give him a number. Like even, I mean, I, I'm not really sure depending on why the client our clients or... are different. But they, the last, I reckon, probably five fee proposals we've put in for resi work have not even been questioned. Yeah, ours almost never get questioned. Never um, get questioned. Occasionally, I don't have to explain it. I just give them the number and they go, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that's a lot to do with our position. 
yeah. and our marketing and all of those kinds of things as well. But we do, it's interesting because if they asked, I would be ready to answer that question. So we would run it through the time cost calculator for one and then that tells us how many hours other architects are using on phases of a similar size project. So, for example, when we did one where we did an airplane hangar, even though we're mostly resi firm, I don't know what they cost. Like I wouldn't, you know, it's not my sort of field of expertise. And so I went on a, on a completely different path to find the cost for that project and to check what I assumed my hours would be um, against a whole bunch of other things. And I, you know, crossed it with percentage, I crossed it with asking other firms what they were charging for commercial work, I crossed it with time cost calculator. And so in the end, I had a number that I felt was reflective of the project that we were going to do and the clients, what the clients were after. And so I think that's, We've now brought that process from costing that job into our resi work and we check against all these different parameters to make sure that we think we've got the right fee. Um, and then Get the airplane hangar gig? Yeah. We actually, well, we, we it was a full Stephen Bradbury. We did a tender that was supposed to be against five other architects. I don't even know why. You know, a friend of ours asked us to be in it. We're like, oh, we'll have a go at this. And, uh, and then all the other ones fell over and we got the job. <laughs> they fell over in that... Your, no one else submitted. They all ran out of time. Oh, that sort of you know, there's some weird things that happened. We were the only ones in the AI process at the end, so we went. Nice. Okay. Yeah. The it's not like that moment in. Um, is that, that a, a an ACA tool? It is an ACA tool. So uh, good question. It's remember you can use that and you can you put in your profit margin. Put in, you know, the budget of the project and what, you know, there's a whole series of parameters to check. And you also put in your overheads into there. So you can, if you're a young architect, you're making sure in that that you're not, um, you're not undercutting your minimum. Mm. But obviously we know that you, you don't just do it for the cost that you do it for. You can do it. You do it for the, the price that you can get it at. So you then, that's where you start tweaking your profit margin in that. But it does mean if you need to show your clients how m- many hours other architects are, are spending on this kind of thing, you can produce this little printout that says all the other architects in Australia who use the time cost calculator in between 230 hours and 260 hours yeah. for documentation. Yeah. So we're somewhere in the middle uh. of this. And then that that helps them feel comfortable that your fee in your fee proposal is actually a reliable number. Do you ever tell your clients though, um, you're more in a uh, position to answer this, Warwick. That all of this is a bit of a moot point anyway. If you look at the project, it's going to cost you 100%, right? If 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 there wasn't an architect involved, and and say 110% if you choose the architect who charges 10%. Mm-hmm. And then if another architect down the road is uh, um, 11%, then you're talking mm. about the difference between 110% and 111%, or you know from somewhere from 117% to 108%. Really, at the end of the day, in the total project costs, we're talking about bugger all. Yeah. It's like if you sell a house, $1.5 million, so you want to sell it for $1.5 million and you end up selling it for $1.49995. You know, you don't really worry about that, are you? That's right, yeah. Whereas people are looking at these little sort of thin margins between the choice between architects and we're like, 
if the question we, we've had a couple of people who've said, oh, you know, that that's that fourteen percent sounds too high or whatever it is, and we're like, that that's fine. We're not really we don't really negotiate too much on our fees. Um, no. But what we would encourage you to do would be to look at it in terms of the of the overall project cost, um, mm. and we use that one hundred and fourteen percent analysis. But uh, to us, it's it. We just say to the client, it's about getting the person that you like. That is far more important yep. than 16.1% versus 15.3%. Yep. Um, that's it, that's basically irrelevant. If you get but a this... great relationship and somebody who, who can listen to you and give you what you want, just choose that person. And this is the reason why as architects it is really great that we are a collegiate profession and we share this information about our fees. Mm. Because I think once that fee proposal hits the desk, I don't think there's a person choosing between five of us at a variety of percentages, like likely at that point, yeah, they're going with you yeah. um, or they're going with maybe you and one other person that they dearly love as yeah. well. And so there I is no they, reason why we wouldn't share this. Yeah. I actually think that my percentage fee isn't the hurdle to signing on a project. It's because I tell the clients straight up that I reckon most of our projects are going to be about $4,000 a square metre or, or above. Um, yeah. And that's that's the killer for most people. Yeah, that's what we do too. Yeah, we either get rid of them or and, and that's you know, the bring them in the door. And I, I can deliver that within about ten minutes on the phone to people. Yeah, um, yeah. So that we don't end up spending hours writing fee proposals, and we just say, look, you know, we just need to, you know, sort of make sure our expectations are aligned. We say, you know, if you're after a family home somewhere between two hundred to two hundred fifty square meters of of house. Um, take their brief and, and say, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be that sort of size. And then we, we say, look, you know, we could do it, you know, a, a bit less than 4,000. Some of our projects have been a bit less than that. With economy of scales, you know, you can get down to 3,500 for, for a larger house. But um, at, the, at the end of the day, what you're talking about is going to be an $800,000 project, for example. Um, then the, the question over your percentage fee on that is it, isn't really, you don't even get to that. They don't even get to the point where you're asking how much your fee is because yeah. they're either in the right ballpark or they're not. Mm, exactly. So on um, just a question for both of you. One of the other things apart from the budget or the, the cost of the project that the fee proposal deals with is the changing in relationships. So that is a complete variable that we don't have control over. And, I mean, when we sit down and we meet someone and everything's great at the beginning of the project and we really hope that that's the relationship we have with our clients at the end, um, it is kind of an unknown and I was thinking that your fee proposals would likely have clauses in there that sort of um, establish parameters for that relationship and I was going to ask you about those. Like I think, Nick, you have one uh, that's about photography at the end. That's a good one. Yeah, so we've had a couple of projects where um, the clients have got to the end of it and said, look, we don't want to have our house photographed and we... Um, we feel as though that that's kind of our, in many ways, it's our product and our um, uh, and, and sort of the evidence of the fact that we know what we're doing. Um, so we can encourage clients to sort of think about that as their one of their roles as a patron of, of this art form mm. is to um, is to allow their their work, which has been produced for them, to be celebrated, and um, that that often works. I think to to remind the clients of their sort of responsibility as a patron. Um, and you know, we we also sort of gently remind them that you know this is this is how we make our money. You know, we need to be able to to show people what we do, and that's how mm. our business is is built. Um, and uh, so, yeah, in our con- in our contract with the client, we have um, a requirement for um, a few days at the end of the project to to photograph the house. Um, and we ha- we haven't found um, 
that many issues over the years with it, maybe one or two projects. Um, but I think it's it's a nice one to uh, establish that expectation at the yep. start. And also even the expectation that we're doing this project for you and we're going into this with the full expectation that this will be a masterpiece that we will want to photograph and preserve forever. Mm. Um, and I think it sets the bar nice and high. What about you, Warwick? Um, yeah, I was going to talk about the... Um that one of the changes we made years ago, which I still feel like is one of the best things we did for our agreement, speaks exactly to that question you had about that changing nature of the relationship. And that's to do with the deposit. So when we first started, we didn't charge a deposit. Uh, we used to have a clause in our agreement. Um, it's about a, like it was called the termination fee. I remember speaking to people about it at the time. I mean, how do you calculate a termination fee? Is it a percentage of the work that you've already done or a percentage of the work that has yet to be done. And the philosophy basically is, well, you're doing me out of, you know, revenue moving forwards and profit and therefore you have to take a penalty for Mm. not giving me that work anymore. That's kind of the idea of it. And I reckon in certain, certain certain industries perhaps or even different parts of the architectural industry, that would be totally fine because it's Mm. just kind of almost like a poison pill type of arrangement you kill this project and you still have to pay me for my lost revenue and lost um, profit. Mm. But in residential, we never, ever even asked for it yeah. because as soon as that project dies, what, you're going to go back and say, oh, you have to pay me five grand for Money, killing please. a project? It's like that you're, thing just, again. you're just lucky to not You feel like, oh, I, just, uh, I want to get away from them. I don't want to get sued or I don't want to, you know, we just yeah. need to go. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a totally... There's a classic example of that, the idea of the contract setting up the framework for the relationship, mm. abject failure because it was not a clause that could ever be enacted in practice. Mm. Yeah, so why bother? Why bother? And so we got rid of it. And replaced and it with a deposit clause? A non-refundable deposit clause. Oh, and how do you find that? Deposit clause. And so and I remember at the time there was, and even still I know there are lots of architects who don't charge deposits, feel like it's somehow like immoral or something, <laughs> but you think about how often we pay deposits on every other thing Everything. in our life. Everything, yeah. yeah. Um, why wouldn't you pay it for, yeah. um, uh, you know, pay it for a consultant? And and there are lots of other consultants who do it as well, like graphic designers do it and photographers do it, like everyone does it. Mm. And mm. so we, you know, you call it a mobilisation fee or a deposit or whatever, but we charge a 5% deposit. And it's based off the starting budget. So yep. if the budget changes, the deposit doesn't change. It's just it's a nominal sum. Yeah. And if um, the client five percent of the whole fee, five percent of our fee. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So if it was a hundred grand fee, it'd be a five thousand dollar yeah deposit. Mm. And the, the idea of that is that's kind of to cover us for you know that bit of work that is already just there, always just there in the future that you haven't invoiced for. Yeah. A bit of research you've done for the stage two down the track about the fireplace or whatever that's just sitting there waiting to be enacted. You can't technically ask for, you know, any part of that phase yet, but you've done the work. Mm. And if the project is killed before it's built, that money doesn't get returned. Mm. So it is a termination fee. Yeah, an upfront termination fee. And so either we, gets used or doesn't. We did that, Warwick, and we, we did a few projects with the um, with the deposit and it was one of these things about, you know, it's like steering a cruise ship. You make that more small change and see what the um, what the result is later on. And we found that 
the projects that had the deposit when uh, a few of them did go uh, towards cancellation, you know, people changed their minds about projects and everything, the return of that deposit became very contentious and um, to the point where mm. it was almost contributing to the, the things that led to the projects not continuing. Um, the demise. The demise of the project. So we stopped doing it. So we went through that and then steered back to our original course, which is no deposits. Um, and there's, I mean, there's we swings and roundabouts for it. The I like the idea of a deposit because I find it's a bit of a bullshit detector too. Like if, if you have a client mm. who says, yeah, I'm going to do this million-dollar pub and um, they, they refuse to come up with um, five grands to, to mobilise the, the project, um, then you've got a pretty good understanding of how they're going to pay their fees in the, in the long run. Um, but at the same time, I think by not charging a deposit and by extending a, you know, we, we, we invoice monthly and we extend all of our clients a one-month credit essentially you know it could be ten thousand dollars worth of work and um i think that's an incredibly generous gesture uh to, to and, and a sort of a show of good faith in the project to to provide that credit um no not interested in good faith <laughs> ruthless i mean well it's not a very businessy thing to do it's it's, it's sort of like yeah. it's i live in this small town and it's you know you know it's, it's a nice thing to do for the community but i'll be on the front page of the courier tomorrow i can tell you that right. <laughs> mick, Maloney, mick and jules stitches Maloney. someone up yeah <laughs> no no deposit with these guys yeah. doing it for the community yeah. um look i guess um saying it out loud it sounds ridiculously quaint you know, no other industry would allow you to go into a hundred thousand dollar agreement with somebody and uh, and leave nothing on the table for one, you know, a month worth of that work. That's, that's mm. insane. Oh, look, I think in every one of these decisions, there's always got to be a consideration of the payoff. And I'm totally behind the philosophy of saying, well, I'm not going to ask for this five thousand dollars. Let's say that's what it is. But instead of not asking for that, I'm not doing it because I'm scared of not doing it. I'm not doing it. I think that's a bad reason to not do it because you're worried about the outcome. Yeah. I think you should, that's a, just you do it. you got to get over that. You know, yeah. if you're a young architect listening to this and you're going, oh, I don't know if I should or not, just do you're it. You're going to upset my clients happens. by billing them. They'll yeah. respect you more if you bill them. If they'll respect yeah. you more. And the world works. They've done this so many times more than you. They, you know, these people, by the time they mm. get to the point where they want to get an architect, they're commissioning somebody to design their house, they've made a, a ton of money and they've, they've been in business or they've been, you know, in the big bad world more so than a, a, an architect in their 20s. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. More so than an architect in their forties. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, but if the reason that you're not doing it is because you think that there's more value in the goodwill of not doing it than the five thousand dollars, or if word gets around because you're in a smaller community and you feel like that's important, or maybe it's just like considered as a loss leader, like you know, yep. doing you know the way you treat that sort of early kind of um, marketing kind of process and the engagement you have with the client before they actually start paying you money. Mm. Um, you know, I don't believe in doing work for free, but I do believe in if if this makes sense for you, doing work in a very kind of strategic way strategic for non-financial gain. Like Absolutely. that's that's part of the deal. Yep. If that's what you want. Yeah. But that's but, not not paying. Not not charging someone. That's different. I think, you, yeah, you're talking yeah, yeah. about being strategic. If you're not going to charge someone, it's going to be very strategic and you know exactly what you're going to get out of it and you're getting X out of it mm. as opposed to being like, oh, I don't want to charge them because I don't want to upset them. Mm. Having a not upset client is not a reason to build. Oh, and it's just postponing that's not an outcome, too. you know. Yeah. 
There's a fundamental um, exchange in business that I don't think we, I, I never got taught this um, mm. and I'm not even sure where I've picked it up over the years. But if you're going into business for yourself, by definition, that means you're taking a risk. And the thing you're risking, first and foremost, is probably your salary, mm. um, your livelihood. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no point in doing that unless there's a reward. Mm. Business is about taking a risk to receive a reward. If you're not cut out for that kind of exchange, you should get a job somewhere and get paid a reliable salary and therefore not take that risk. And as a consequence of that exchange, my philosophy is, is, is that, well, every single time we sign a fee proposal or write a fee proposal, we're taking a risk that the client's not going to screw us, that we're going to get paid every invoice. Or, you know, n- no client ever comes back to you and says, you know what, I loved your work so much. I'm going to pay you 10% more. <laughs> you did a great job and you were worth it. Yeah. It's always in the other direction. Yeah. So if that is part of the deal, then I think it's incumbent upon us as business people to try and um, leverage our positions when we can to get paid better so that we can weather those storms when inevitably they arise in every kind of person's career. Mm. Otherwise, there's no reward. It's just risk. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for watching. This concludes uh, the end of our second episode uh, on fee proposals, part one. Uh, You can find us at our website at www.indetail.show or our Twitter handle uh, at indetailshow. You can watch us on YouTube uh, and you can also find us at Warwick's truly wonderful blog, (laughs) (laughs) www.panfilo.com. That shouldn't be in there, guys. <laughs> little, little plug, little sneaky plug in there, Warwick. Into the Who script. wrote that? <laughs> I think what you were meaning to say <laughs> was uh, listen to us. We're everywhere in capitals. <laughs> we're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Mick, I think just note to self: mm. we can write anything we want and Kate will read it out. Right. <laughs> I think that's the real Ron Burgundy moment. I saw it in capitals and I was like, Twitter!